Welcome to COE Connections, the SDSU College of Education Research and Scholarship Podcast Series. I'm your host, Rachel Hain-Schlegel. I'm the Interim Associate Dean for Research for the College of Education and an Associate Professor of Child and Family Development here at San Diego State University, a Hispanic-serving institution on the land of the Kumeyaay. This is our second episode of the series, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jenica Paz. Jenica is an Assistant Professor in the Counseling and School Psychology Department. She's a nationally certified school psychologist and a licensed clinical psychologist. Jenica was born and raised here in San Diego. She is a proud first-generation high school and college graduate and breaker of cycles of intergenerational poverty and trauma. She completed her doctoral degree at UC Santa Barbara's Department of Counseling, Clinical, and School Psychology. Jenica is passionate about ensuring high-quality and culturally affirming service delivery to local capable youth with histories of adverse life circumstances. Her research involves an array of interests, but centers on promoting mental well-being among youth of color and from minoritized cultural and linguistic backgrounds, especially those with experience in the foster care system, a system that she has firsthand experience with. Jenica currently works on two Office of Special Education programs, OSEP is their acronym, funded projects, Project HEAL and Project TLC, both of which focus on supporting youth in foster care. She currently serves as co-director of her department's school psychology program, and she's active in various service commitments across campus and in her community, including serving as co-chair for the Promises to Kids Guardian Scholars Scholarship Committee for former foster youth seeking higher education. So welcome, Jenica, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Before we get started, I want to mention I'm in my office in Lambden Hall. Where are you today? I am just across the way in North Education, and I could give a wave out my window and almost see you from where I'm at. So very close by. Yes, very close by. So thank you so much for for being here today. And I also just want to say a really big thank you for taking the time to do this when you are getting ready to have a baby next month. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really, you know, there's a lot of hard deadlines that come with having a baby. And I really, we all appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your super important work before you embark on that journey again. Um, Okay. So I have a few questions prepared and let's see how it goes. So my first question is, why do you study what you do? Thank you for that question. And thank you for having me this morning. Um, I think, you know, a lot of what you mentioned in in terms of my background has absolutely led me on the path where I'm at today. Um, Some of that firsthand experience with the different systems um, with respect to health and human service agencies and the public school systems, I have firsthand experience with. And so I feel like I bring, um, you know, some unique insight in terms of some of the things that work well and some of the things that don't work well. Um, I look across across my family and I also see how how vastly different our outcomes and life trajectories were. And so I've really um, become committed to trying to help um, interrupt and also maybe highlight the things that are working well within some of the systems, but also um, knowing firsthand which areas could use improvement. And so um, I think, you know, for me, there's that that personal drive. Absolutely. That's also informed by those lived experiences. Um, And then a little bit more professionally, I um, I'm really fortunate to have landed here at SDSU where I feel like there's 
um, a space for me to have this congruency between my teaching, my service, and my scholarship. They're all intimately connected reciprocally and transactionally. Um, my service in the community uh, really is uh, intersects with my identity as a scholar, a practitioner, but also, and most importantly, a community member. Um, so I do, I aim to promote these strengths-based approaches across school psychology service delivery, promote critical thinking and problem-solving abilities that are grounded in a social justice mindset. A lot of this stemming from being a first-generation uh, high school graduate, actually, and, and college, and then not to mention then um, graduate. Um, I'm also a multiracial Latina woman from a foster care background. I'm super committed to um, providing a more culturally affirming graduate school experience for my grad students as well, much more so than maybe what I experienced. Um, and that in turn contributing to building a pipeline of diverse school psychologists uh, to address the shortage of BIPOC practitioners, especially those who are equipped to serve students such as those who are experience, have experience in the foster care system. Um, so a lot of the work I do remains unseen in how I authentically am connecting with my diverse students um, and how I uh, craft my course content so that cultural assets, identity and language, experiences of repression are central um, and given space to process. And lastly, I strive to become one of the less 0.5. So I'm even moving beyond that 1% tier to this 0.5% of former foster youth to become a tenured professor. And I do hope to serve as inspiration for the next generation of capable students in or from foster care. Wow, that is, um, it's just amazing the, uh, the obstacles that you have overcome to be in the place you are and have the, the ability to impact um, change at the level that that we're able to in the in the sort of academic world. Um, one of the things that really struck me about the work that you um, shared with me was how um, how focused it is on actually changing practice in the real world. So, for example, the the, you sent me something, a policy piece where you wrote about, you know, the need for strength-based assessment policies. And you didn't just write about it. You actually wrote a draft policy, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. which was uh, that, that people can copy and, you know, it's, and I, we both know from the, the academic uh, side of things, it's so much easier to edit something than it is to write something yourself. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, that that's um, that's really uh, it's really powerful that your um, what you do professionally comes from both your personal and your professional kind of experiences. My second question is actually a request. So, mm -hmm. can you please describe an example of the impact your research has had on the community? Sure. Um, I thought a lot about this in terms of impact. Um, and I think I don't feel that I've even adequately scratched the surface of where I, of the impact I've yet to um, create, especially in this community. I would say though, if I were to sum up some of my impact, I think it has to do with um, collaborations and the networking um, that I have been able to build in this community. And um, reflective of that have been the many, many partnerships that have grown and folks who have been um, kind of seeking my um, 
collegiality and collaboration on various projects that are all aimed at supporting wellness. And I can tell you how different that feels from, hey, can we get some support with assessing school-wide mental health and using kind of these traditional pathology-based screeners, but instead, um, this reputation has built to where now um, I have had the good fortune to uh, engage in collaborations with psychiatrists, uh, residential treatment settings and non-public schools, community-based organizations, as well as school districts. And I've been able to help shape assessment practices and policies that involve um, a commitment to systematically identifying youth psychosocial strengths and their assets into their educational and mental health planning. So my work has really helped people get interested and excited to challenge the status quo um, and including, so the policy piece you mentioned, that's also included um, if an alumni student of mine who was a former GA on one of my projects, they've gone on to um, disseminate findings and policy recommendations to service providers within their school district and has helped shape a whole school wellness assessment practice. Um, that also, so, you know, taking the, the findings and then disseminating that into practice. And now it's kind of an annual um, thing that they're doing is screening the whole school for uh, wellness and helping um, triage intervention, positive psychological intervention groups based on some of this work, which is what it's been about all along. Um, and also, I think um, from these, again, my, the spirit of connections and collaborations is how I'm framing this impact. Um, but I've also, from my work, uh, been invited to present with community partners at state conferences. And at these state conferences, they're uh, really dedicated to advancing educational equity and resiliency among students in foster care. So I have found these platforms where this work can really land and resonate. And from that um, participation in work groups, seeking to change some legislation and policy. And so when I say it, I think, you know, about impact, it's um, there's so much more coming and change is slow, but I can say I feel like the seeds of that collaboration and the deep network and connections I've been able to build um, within the community has been for me how I'd like to sum up my impact, uh, just that integral connection and that the fact that folks are um, starting to engage in this mind uh, shift thinking from um, you know, looking at a lot of the pathology-laden language that has plagued um, especially youth in foster care to really actionable uh, ways that we can promote the strengths and use that to um, help students on a more thriving life trajectory. So I, I know that's a long, maybe a longer winded answer, but um, I think that is a way I'd like to best capture some of my impact. It's very much ongoing um, and not something I ever see uh, stopping anytime soon. Well, I mean, it was certainly long, not long winded, your response. And I think it reflects how uh, broad and deep your impact has been already. And I really love your, your um, just your, your attitude around like, and so much more is coming. You know, I think that that is a really, um, just a really cool way to, to, to think about our professional lives as mm -hmm. faculty members and as um, community collaborators. And what a beautiful example you mentioned of uh, the former student who was able to implement policy changes in such a way that they now have become part of the norm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that really is um, the kind of gold standard, right, for the, the work that we all try to do is to help um, schools and communities uh, sort of 
change, shift their culture, shift their mm-hmm. norms, shift what they do normally. Um, so, wow. So that was amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, now I want to ask you, what do you struggle with the most in studying your area? Oh my gosh. I, the struggle is real. <laughs> um, that is for sure. I am a little bit kind of grumpy. Uh, I tune in to, with a really close ear when I hear folks uh, using terms such as strength space or well-being. I, I'm getting to the point where I feel like it's just become kind of a trend to throw slap it on the title of a presentation um, because I find that um, oftentimes they're included to attract some interest, but then when I really dig in to learn more, oh, I'm, you know, another model or framework or approach, but often I find that they're not really rooted in any kind of a comprehensive framework that's driving their um, practice. This is leading to the fact that I feel like it can be incredibly harmful and frankly annoying to students in foster care who have providers who engage in this kind of surface level dialogue involving strengths, um, or they're told to just to to try it, try it out. Um, it can quickly turn into or be received as like a toxic positivity that could easily end up minimizing the raw trauma and hardships that underlie the needs of youth in foster care. So I struggle with finding the balance of using like psychometrically sound and comprehensive systems to measure student well-being, but making sure there's space for youth voice, their culture and experiences to shed light on their narratives and lived experiences while honoring the social justice work that I care so deeply about. Um, and our population are often easily exploited for our narratives and stories. I can't tell you how many times while um, in undergrad and graduate school, I was invited to do guest speaking events that were just like for free and just to use my stories to, for, um, you know, the benefit of others to try and gain funds for, you know, whatever um, organization. And so I, I really care deeply about not exploiting our narratives and our stories. Um, and so these are some cycles that I don't want to perpetuate with my own research that I'm engaging um, with youth who are currently in foster care or alumni of foster care. Um, so instead, I really try to aim to find ways to empower youth, um, especially at a younger age, by highlighting and bringing awareness into their own power of cultivating their strengths so that they can take ownership of their narratives and cre- create a more fulfilling life. So that's something I, I you know, that I'm always very conscious about and um, intentional about in my work and the way that I'm framing studies and also why it takes a little longer. I am not a, you know, I'm not here pumping out article after article because um, the work that I'm doing, I, I want to make sure it's honoring their voices and their narratives, not exploiting, and then also taking the time to digest um, information gleaned about the population in a way um, that the community and folks and providers and the students themselves can benefit from first before I, you know, have have that in turn add another, you know, line on my CV, but it's not, it's not about that in any way, shape or form. So um, I, that's something else I hope other, you know, folks around campus can also find, um, especially our, you know, junior faculty as they're engaging in this work too, is to, to find that uh, meaning making. And so that's been a journey that I've been on. And I think I'm very proud of where I'm at with, um, with respect to that in terms of the ways that I'm engaging in this, um, you know, psychometrically sound methodology, but then also um, honoring the, the voices and narratives of the, of the students and youth that I'm working with. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, the fact that you had those experiences of being exploited for your 
your background, what you talked about sort of giving talks about um, your experiences in the foster care system, um, seems like that really informs how you go about doing your academic work and that you have this really deep, rich um, understanding of uh, the possibility of exploitation that maybe many of us do not. Um, it, it might be harder for us to gain that perspective and to um, to fight that urge to get that other line on our CV. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? You know? mm-hmm. um, and I think you're, you know, one of the things that um, I was really struck with in some of the reading that I did that you sent me was this idea with, with um, strengths-based assessment. Um, you sort of talked about it as like kind of a fad, right. Or a keyword. Mm-hmm. If you put the, if you put that word on something, you're going to get more attention, you're going to get more funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's not really a deep commitment to actually using developing that field, developing measures, and then using the information that's collected in a meaningful way. Um, and I loved when you talked in one of your papers about um, the idea that there can be a dialectic, sort of that mm-hmm. two, both can be true, that student assessment of needs is, is critical and by itself is harmful, and that there can also be a very equally rich and impactful assessment of strengths. I thought that was, that's a really cool way to approach it, sort of like really validating the current system Mm -hmm. while also saying the system needs to change. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you picking up on that. Um, In the public health field that's called uh, complete mental health or complete wellness, in school psychology, we have frameworks calling it uh, dual factor models of mental health assessments and um, if we are really only looking at the, the what's wrong instead of the what's strong, um, I think it, we're, we are going to set ourselves up for pigeonholing or setting up students for some failure. We're not honoring uh, what are the assets and strengths they have to help them um, buffer and overcome some of those um, challenges that, of course, uh, we know youth in foster care are facing that's very, very well documented. Um, and so we we already know that. And so we need to to do that and, you know, kind of shift more on the on the healing and the the thriving versus kind of just dwelling in um, the pathology that's very well documented. So I appreciate you picking up on that. Yeah. Another thing I picked up on, I just sort of, I'm ex- had so many things that were so um, exciting in what I was reading was the idea you put forth that resiliency is not an attribute, even though it is almost always used as an adjective. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. More? Yes. I Yeah. I love, I love this topic and I love that you're pinpointing this piece too. Um, this is a line of thought that I've picked up from my PhD advisor, Dr. Michael Furlong, who's uh, from UC Santa Barbara. Um, and it is the, the idea that we should really be thinking about resiliency much more as a verb. It's an active process um, versus just a noun as a trade, as an attribute. Um, and some of this is also informed by work of Anne Mastin, who talks about resiliency as sort of having this uh, innate ordinary magic. Um, and and I was actually, when I was driving this morning, I was thinking a little bit about this too. That I, it's on my mind very often because I also have a book I'm working on. Um, 
which is uh, my own recipe for resiliency. And so I hope that comes out. But another analogy that comes up for me is I think about Tupac and how he says that um, just working with the scraps you were given, Mama made miracles every Thanksgiving. And this is that idea for me of the ordinary magic that Ann Mastin talks about is that we, um, we often think of resiliency as having to have some sort of superpowers to overcome. But the truth is, is that um, we can make that out of almost anything. And I think that if um, we are really slowing down and attuning to our students, there is, there's a lot that we can identify. It doesn't need to be something magical. It doesn't need to be some other brand new evidence-based intervention um, that we're focusing all this money and time, but actually slowing down, connecting, getting to know the youth and identifying what some of their, um, you know, their strengths, interests, and just connecting with them before, um, before anything else. I think that that goes a very long way. So it's working with those scraps we were given. My recipe for resiliency is a kitchen sink method and refrigerator aid is how we talked about it growing up that um, sometimes it might mean I'm eating a peanut butter and relish sandwich for my dinner. And that's true story. That's sometimes all we had in the refrigerator. Um, but it nourished me and fed me enough to that I, you know, was able to get through another day that might not sound all that tasty, um, that might not be slapped with some gold star, gold standard evidence-based intervention to get me through it. Um, but I think it's honoring and connecting those sort of um, innate, uh, you know, strengths that students might already have or possess and not be aware of. And even if it isn't, um, something all that fancy or sophisticated. And those may change and evolve uh, reciprocally and transactionally over time. Um, and what we have today might not be the same as what we have tomorrow, but youth in foster care always find a way. We're very crafty and we always have a way. Um, and so again, it's thinking about this longer term trajectory of resiliency and the path towards thriving um, is a very active process that we're actively um, you know, scouring our, our resources, our community and making it work to survive another day. So I wanna move us from that surviving to thriving and that piece where you're talking about the resiliency as this much more of a, um, of a verb is in line with that um, from, just, from just surviving to thriving. So I told you I get excited when we yeah. talk about that topic. So <laughs> thanks for picking the, up on that. <laughs> you know, I, I, and I think you, you pretty much have, have given a general answer to my last question in talking about moving from surviving to thriving, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. <laughs> I am also a clinical psychologist and I, um, you know, one of the things that, that I will often ask when I've done clinical work is sort of, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and make things be the way they, you want them to be, what would that look like? So for you, you know, if we could wave a magic wand and make society as a whole move towards your vision of high quality and culturally affirming service delivery to capable youth with histories of trauma, what would that look like? Um, you know what, this is, this is also reminding me somehow of my work as a clinical training specialist. And I would do these trainings on like for, for folks in the community, stakeholders, providers, like they want a to do and what not to do list. And so I used to actually frame my trainings in a to do and what not to do list. So I sort of um, am approaching that question from that mindset. Um, I think what we would not be doing is we would not be labeling students as emotionally disturbed. That'd be really great to get that out of our, our language and our, out of our law. Um, especially because not labeling them due to experiences that happened to them 
we wouldn't be labeling them as socially maladjusted either, which a lot of youth in foster care, it's one of those like exclusionary factors from uh, preventing them from accessing special education supports. Um, we would instead, so on the to-do side, we would be approaching them from a place of empathy and assume that they're doing the very best they can with the skills they currently have. We would be seeking connection before correction. We would also be using more inclusive narratives in books and different television programmings that um, children are exposed to that are highlighting the more uh, various home living situations and backgrounds that our youth in foster care experience. So there's more congruency and alignment um, with, with that and the exposure. So other youth are seeing that there's different ways of, you know, of, of upbringing. And terms such as capable youth would rather readily flow from our tongues instead of vulnerable or marginalized. Um, and when you're asked to write research papers or engage in work, you're always asked to describe the problem. And so we're often saying, well, foster youth are among the most vulnerable population. Um, but as you were able to kind of review in some of my bio and background, I uh, really try to model this language of not vulnerable, but if we take out those first few letters of that vulnerable to capable, let's keep the able part on that word, but they are capable. And what a difference that might make if we are approaching students from uh, that space is being capable versus vulnerable and how might that shape our service delivery planning. So those would be some of my, my kind of ways that I would like to change society. Oh, I, I, I really, really, really hope we get there someday. What you, what you talk about sounds, what you envision is it sounds absolutely wonderful. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to also take what you said and, and think about it in my own teaching, because I teach research methods mm -hmm. and we, it's one of the things I teach is how to sort of dissect a research article. Mm -hmm. And the first question is what is the social problem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's where oh, yeah. I have them start. So I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking <laughs> about what we've talked about in terms mm -hmm. of my my own teaching as well. So thank you so much, Jenica, for talking with me and taking the time. This has been just amazing. You're doing just phenomenal work. It sounds like the impact you've had already is tremendous and you're just getting started. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I really appreciated the, the space and sharing time with you. And I'd love to come in on one of those classes where you're engaged in some of that work and <laughs> see it in action. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel.